Chapter Nineteen of the Book of Snobs. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Barry Eads. The Book of Snobs by William Makepeace Thackeray. Chapter Nineteen. Dining Out Snobs. In England, dinner-giving snobs occupy a very important place in society, and the task of describing them is tremendous. There was a time in my life when the consciousness of having eaten a man's salt rendered me dumb regarding his demerits, and I thought it a wicked act and a breach of hospitality to speak ill of him. But why should a saddle of mutton blind you, or a turbet and lobster sauce shut your mouth for ever? With advancing age, men see their duties more clearly. I am not to be hoodwinked any longer by a slice of venison, be it ever so fat, and as for being dumb on account of turbet and lobster sauce, of course I am. Good manners ordain that I should be so, until I have swallowed the compound, but not afterwards. Directly the victuals are discussed, and John takes away the plate, my tongue begins to wag. Does not yours, if you have a pleasant neighbor? A lovely creature, say, of some five-and-thirty, whose daughters have not yet quite come out. They are the best talkers. As for your young missus, they are only put about the table to look at, like the flowers in the centerpiece. Their blushing youth and natural modesty preclude them from easy, confidential, conversational abandon which forms the delight of the intercourse with their dear mothers. It is to these, if he would prosper in his profession, that the dining-out snob should address himself. Suppose you sit next to one of these. How pleasant it is, in the intervals of the banquet, actually to abuse the victuals and the giver of the entertainment. It's twice as piquant to make fun of a man under his very nose. What is a dinner-giving snob, some innocent youth, who is not repandue in the world may ask, or some simple reader who has not the benefits of London experience? My dear sir, I will show you. Not all, for that is impossible, but several kinds of dinner-giving snobs. For instance, suppose you, in the middle rank of life, accustomed to mutton, roast on Tuesday, cold on Wednesday, hashed on Thursday, etc., with small means and a small establishment, choose to waste the former, and set the latter topsy-turvy by giving entertainments unnaturally costly. You come into the dinner-giving snob class at once. Suppose you get in cheap-made dishes from the pastry cooks, and hire a couple of green grocers, or carpet-beaters, to figure as footmen, dismissing honest Molly, who waits on common days, and bedezzening your table, ordinarily ornamented with willow-pattern crockery, with two-penny, half-penny Birmingham plate. Suppose you pretend to be richer and grander than you ought to be. You are a dinner-giving snob, and, oh, I tremble to think how many and many a one will read this. A man who entertains in this way, and, alas, how few do not, is like a fellow who would borrow his neighbor's coat to make a show in, or a lady who flaunts in the diamonds from next door. A humbug, in a word, and amongst the snobs he must be set down. A man who goes out of his natural sphere of society to ask lords, generals, aldermen, and other persons of fashion, but is niggardly of his hospitality towards his own equals, is a dinner-giving snob. My dear friend, Jack Tuffunt, for example, knows one lord whom he met at a watering-place, old Lord Mumble, who is as toothless as a three-months-old baby, and as mum as an undertaker, and as dull as, well, we will not particularize. 
Tuftunt never has a dinner now, but you see this solemn old toothless patrician at the right hand of Mrs. Tuftunt. Tuftunt is a dinner-giving snob. Old Livermore, Old Soy, Old Chutney, the East Indian director, Old Cutler, the surgeon, etc., that society of old fogies, in fine, who give each other dinners round and round, and dine for the mere purpose of guttling, these again are dinner-giving snobs. Again, my friend Lady McScrew, who has three grenadier flunkies in lace round the table, and serves up a scrag of mutton on silver, and dribbles you out bad sherry and port by thimblefuls, is a dinner-giving snob of the other sort, and I confess for my part I would rather dine with old Livermore, or old Soy, than with her ladyship. Stinginess is snobbish. Ostentation is snobbish. Too great profusion is snobbish. Tuft-hunting is snobbish. But I own there are many people more snobbish than all those whose defects are above mentioned, viz., those individuals who can and don't give dinners at all. The man without hospitality shall never sit, sub is dem travibus with me. Let the sordid wretch go mumble his bone alone. What again is true hospitality? Alas, my dear friends and brother snobs, how little do we meet of it after all? Are the motives pure which induce your friends to ask you to dinner? This has often come across me. Does your entertainer want something from you? For instance, I am not of a suspicious turn. But it is a fact that when Hookie is bringing out a new work, he asks the critics all round to dinner. That when Walker has got his picture ready for the exhibition, he somehow grows exceedingly hospitable, and has his friends of the press to a quiet cutlet and a glass of celery. Old Hunks, the miser, who died lately, leaving his money to his housekeeper, lived many years on the fat of the land, by simply taking down, at all his friends, the names and Christian names of all the children. But though you may have your own opinion about the hospitality of your acquaintances, and though men who ask you from sordid motives are most decidedly dinner-giving snobs, it is best not to inquire into their motives too keenly. Be not too curious about the mouth of a gift horse. After all, a man does not intend to insult you by asking you to dinner. Though for that matter I know some characters about town who actually consider themselves injured and insulted if the dinner or the company is not to their liking. There is Guttleton, who dines at home off a shilling's worth of beef from the cook-shop, but if he is asked to dine at a house where there are not peas at the end of May, or cucumbers in March, along with Turbet, thinks himself insulted by being invited. Good Ged, he says, what the deuce do the forkers mean by asking me to a family dinner? I can get mutton at home. Or, what infernal impertinence it is of the spooners to get entrees from the pastry cooks, and fancy that I am to be deceived with their stories about their French cook. Then again there is Jack Puddington. I saw that honest fellow t'other day, quite in a rage, because, as chance would have it, Sir John Carver asked him to meet the very same party he had met at Colonel Cramley's the day before, and he had not got up a new set of stories to entertain them. Poor dinner-giving snobs! You don't know what small thanks you get for all your pains and money. How we dining-out snobs sneer at your cookery, and poo-poo your old hock, and are incredulous about your four-and-six-penny champagne, and know that the side-dishes of to-day are rechauffés from the dinner of yesterday, and mark how certain dishes are whisked off the table untested, so that they may figure at the banquet to-morrow. Whenever, for my part, I see the head man, particularly anxious, to escomoteur the frickin' dough, or a blanc-mange, 
I always call out, and insist upon massacring it with a spoon. All this sort of conduct makes one popular with the dinner-giving snob. One friend of mine, I know, has made a prodigious sensation in good society, by announcing apropos of certain dishes when offered to him, that he never eats aspec except at Lord Titup's, and that Lady Jimmy's chef is the only man in London who knows how to dress, filet and serpentin, or supreme de voler autrefs. End of chapter 19